Right, so the Bible reading today, we've got two parts. The first part comes from Psalm 107, verse 23 to 32. And you can read it on the screen. Some went out on the sea ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in an assembly of the people and praise him in the council of elders. And the uh, second reading comes from Matthew 8, verses 18 to 34. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, He gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat and the disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side of, in the region of the Gardeners, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus. If you drive us out, send us to the herd of the pigs. Then he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank to the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Well, few of us uh, ever have had our words immortalized by Whoopi Goldberg, but the teacher of the law did. Did you pick it up? You know the words, don't you? He may go. Ready? There isn't an ocean too deep, no mountain so high you can keep me away. 
Okay, we could keep going, but um, would we? Uh, because is it true, is it really true for you that because you love him, there isn't an ocean too deep or a mountain so high that can keep you away? That sounds so easy, doesn't it? It's easy to be sincere when the cost is small, which is no doubt what this would-be disciple thought. Jesus said, or he said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you may go. Yes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You can't get too comfortable following me, says Jesus, will be challenging. Jesus had no place to lay his head. Does that mean you can't ever own a house? No, it doesn't mean you can't ever own a house. But you ought not to think that you're going to live in it forever. In fact, you probably ought to sit fairly light to it, that if you need to move to reach more people, you will do it. You may go overseas. Would you consider even moving and selling up and moving somewhere else so that we could start a new church plant, for example? Or is your house ownership something sacred to you instead of God? That's kind of wrong, isn't it? Well, today we're going to hear about Maggie Cruz, a normal Christian woman, well, we have heard, who said, I will fo- I'll go wherever you send me. This touches our nerves, doesn't it? We say, oh, but we've got the kids, if you have kids. We've got the kids. Well, could you pray that one day your children would take the news of Christ overseas? Would you pray that prayer for your children, that they would have the honour of reaching unreached people? Or is that too scary? Asking those questions taps into our real fears, doesn't it? And with that, real questions of faith. Can you trust Jesus that if we went, if they went, things would be all right in the end, even if in this life you might lose What I'm asking is, when it comes down to it, is following Jesus a cause for fear? Because you think of what you'll lose. Or is it a cause for reassurance? Because you know he'll be with you. This is a live question for us in our own family. My eldest daughter just told us she wants to leave her work, her good full-time job as a physio, for two years and do a ministry apprenticeship for one and then Bible college for the next. Who knows where that will go? At the same time, my son-in-law said much the same. Now, as a pastor, I'm thinking, wonderful. As a dad, I'm a little bit terrified. Do I trust Jesus enough to want to encourage them and support them or not? Today we see following Jesus requires facing our fears and stepping out of our comfort zone. In the passage, Jesus lays this challenge out. He takes his disciples to two situations more terrifying than they imagined and then um, teaches them two very important lessons about discipleship. So in the structure, the passage has two statements and two demonstrations, or those Miracles. So the two statements are there in verses 18 to 22. First of all, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. To which Jesus says, Animals and birds have places to sleep, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, if that's true for Jesus, then what it means is that following him will not automatically be a path of comfort. In fact, you ought to expect the opposite. It will require cost. And so then we have to ask the question, well, what cost have you counted in following Jesus? It's worth asking because 
the air that we breathe worships the God of comfort. And yet the one we follow renounced the comfort of heaven because people need saving from hell. So what cost have you counted in following Jesus so as to save others? It's a question worth asking, but it's a hard one to answer because whatever answer you come up with, you can always do more, right? So when, when Narelle and I left our friends and family behind and we moved interstate to a place we'd never been before because we thought we would serve Jesus in a different place, you know, where we came to was hardly Calcutta, right? Adelaide Hills, you, you know, but you could go further, couldn't you? You know, we didn't do what Maggie did. You know, this normal Australian girl who went overseas and have served in Africa and, you know, now she's in Cambodia. But, you know, has she really chosen the soft option? Because put her next to someone like Steffi Ruth, who was another CMS gospel worker who went to Afghanistan and gave up her life. Cambodia, did Maggie just choose the soft option? Pussyfoot. All right. You keep on going like this, right? You could sound like the four Yorkshire men outdoing one another with tales of grievance and hardship from living in the corridor to the luxury of living in a shoebox in the middle of the motorway to living for three months in a rolled-up newspaper in a septic tank to having to go live in the lake and then feeling guilty, of course, because you took the softer option. If Jesus says, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to understand the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What is he saying, Right? The second statement is in verse 21. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Well, you can't get a more decent, honourable thing to do than to bury your own dad, right? To which Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. I mean, why so harsh? Is he saying following him on his mission must take priority over the most basic of family obligations? Wim Prins is another of our CMS gospel workers we support. Last year, Wim's dad died. And Wim left Cambodia to go to the Netherlands to bury him. Well, according to what Jesus says here, did he do a wrong thing? And we think, well, hang on. Isn't the same Lord the one who said in the fifth commandment, honour your father and your mother? What's Jesus saying? These two statements have their issues, don't they? After the two statements come two demonstrations, demonstrations of Jesus' authority. The first is the calming of the storm. You know this story well. Jesus and his disciples get into the boat. Suddenly a huge storm comes up out of nowhere, waves crashing over the boat. The experienced fishermen fear for their lives. They wake Jesus, afraid of drowning. He asks the question, why are you so afraid? And we think, well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? But then to everyone's amazement and astonishment, and you can see it happening, he stands up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and just like a noisy classroom suddenly hushes the instant a prin the principal steps in, the wind and the waves suddenly become completely calm. And the disciples say, what kind of a man is this that even the wind and the waves obey well, the answer, we know the answer because we've heard the first reading. The answer is found in the news of the gospel. So in Psalm 107, we heard that the Lord God alone quietens the wind and the waves. 
There it is. Verse 28 and 29. Well, here's Jesus, God in the flesh, God in the boat, sitting next to the disciples, doing for them what they cannot do for themselves to save them. Is that not the gospel? Jesus questioned to them, why are you so afraid? It's not so crazy as it first seems because had they faith to understand the gospel, that he was Jesus, the powerful son of God, who was with them to save them, if they understood that, then they wouldn't have been afraid. If we know who Jesus is and why he's come, what he's done for us, we don't need to be afraid. Well, the second story is equally well known. There's the healing of the demoniac. So you know the story, the man possessed by a legion of demons living amongst the tombs, cutting himself with pottery, spreading fear amongst the villagers who've tried unsuccessfully to chain him. Jesus, of course, heals him, totally transforms him from a demon-possessed raving madman to someone clothed, sitting in his right mind at Jesus' feet, begging to follow Jesus, someone whom Jesus sends to speak of what God's done for him. He's the model disciple, right? And we are wowed by Jesus' authority to change someone like that, except that's not how Matthew tells it, did you notice? That's how Mark tells it. But in Matthew, there are two demoniacs, and there is no mention made of the transformation of the guy at the end. There's no him dressed, sitting in his right mind. There's no him begging to go and follow Jesus. None of that. Matthew doesn't focus on that. His focus is elsewhere. So what do we make of this? You've got two statements, which each are tricky. Then you've got two demonstrations of Jesus' authority. What is God saying to us here? The context of the passage, both before and after, is mission on the wild side. All three episodes have to be taken together because there's a geographical frame that bonds them together. In the first verse, when Jesus saw the crowd, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then in the verse, just after our passage, Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came back to his hometown. Three parts, the statements, the storm on the lake, the meeting, meeting the demoniacs, they all happen around the lake. The lake. The wild, stormy lake. When I was a little tacker, one of my favourite books was Where the Wild Things Are, about a wild boy named Max who had to stay in his bedroom, which magically turns into a forest by a lake. Max gets into the boat and sails to the land where the wild things are. Max tames the wild monsters and brings order to the frightening chaos. He's crowned king before he sails back to his bedroom and makes dinner where the wild things are. This is the place where Jesus takes his disciples. Lake Galilee, wide enough to be a sea, renowned for its freak storms. Now, you need to understand for the Jews, the sea was a symbol of chaos. This was a symbol of waters swirling out of control, symbolic of all that is wrong with the world that's fallen under the curse of sin. This is scary, frightening. The, beyond the lake was Gentile territory where all manner of unclean things are, pigs, tombs, demonic, all terrifying, all chaotic, all untamed, all evil. Now, Jesus, of course, he's tired. He's seeking rest. He could have sought rest in Galilee, but instead, of take, instead Jesus takes his disciples out of their comfort zone 
to where the wild things are, to the forces beyond our control. There's the sea, there's the storm, there's the the evil forces of the demonic realm. And when you stop and think about it, these are the things that really frighten us, aren't they? You look at any range of movies on offer, Netflix or in Hoyts or whatever, there's always a movie about natural disasters. A tidal wave, a storm surge, something that's going to threaten our existence. And then there's always a movie about evil spirits from the realm of the dead. Because these things are the things beyond our control. These are the things that frighten us, right? I bet we've all had moments where we've been spooked or where we've been afraid for our lives, where suddenly we've been conscious that we are so small and we're at the mercy of forces way bigger than us. And the memory of that can come back and haunt us in our dreams. Well, Jesus takes his disciples to the place of their fears to teach them important lessons about following him. And if we have fears about how far we will go in following Jesus, here is God's word for us, right? So in the first statement, the teacher of the law, a disciple of Jesus, promises to follow Jesus wherever he will go. Jesus says, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now let me ask you this question. Where do you next see the son of man laying down his head but not being able to? The boat. Oh, they probably go together, right? In the second statement, Jesus told another disciple, let the dead bury their own dead. And straight away, Jesus sails to the realm of the dead. He encounters two men really straight from hell. They're amongst the tombs and they're possessed by hordes of demons. Well, those statements probably go together. Could it be that the miracles tell us something about discipleship and following Jesus? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for lessons from the wild side. First, the would-be disciple says, I'll go wherever you go. Jesus says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Son of Man. It's an ambiguous title that Jesus uses to refer to himself. It's a title which speaks first of his humanity. He's a human one. He is tired. Doing God's work is tiring tired Jesus and that's why he wants to leave the crowds and lay down his head to sleep but if you're here last Sunday you'll realize that the title son of man it's more than that it comes from Daniel chapter 7 where we hear of one who will come bearing complete authority who'll come at the end of the age when the nations are to be judged one whose rule will triumph over all the other beastly kingdoms, one who is given all authority, glory, and sovereign power, who will be worshipped by all the nations of the earth. Now, given that this is who Jesus is, right? He describes himself as the Son of Man, the one with all authority. Then when he's in the boat, despite the waves, the disciples are safe with Jesus in the boat. That's why Jesus asks... Why are you so afraid? It's a very obvious question. If they knew who he was, they shouldn't have been afraid. Now, if they were safe with Jesus, then we think, well, why did he need to quieten the wind and the waves if the disciples were really safe with him? Because it tells them the scope of his mission 
Jesus lifts his head from where it lay, not just to save souls, but to restore order to the created realm. Jesus' mission is to bring the whole of the cursed and created chaotic creation back under his authority. In um, the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver know that Aslan has come because spring has come to Narnia. In that movie, the whole of Narnia, of course, the trees, the rocks, the streams are corrupted by the reign of the white witch. They can only be restored under Aslan when the new son of Adam comes to Narnia. Now, Lewis had a very good grasp of the scriptures in Genesis Adam's task was to bring order to the creation by ruling over it. That physical creation, including the Sea of Galilee, became cursed when Adam and Eve sinned. So sin doesn't just impact people's relationship with God, it impacts the whole world. And when Adam and Eve sinned and they like dropped a big stone in the middle of the Lake of Eden, the ripples went out to every corner And that's why the whole creation can kill us now instead of serving us because it's cursed. And that's why creation is groaning, Paul says in Romans 8. It's longing for its day of redemption. And that's why the majesty of Jesus is described in Colossians 1, 28, where it says that through through the cross, God reconciles all things to himself through the death of his son. Not just people, but the whole of creation. And that's why when Jesus comes in glory, we're told he will make all things new. There will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth. And that's why we're told the saints will be gathered by the crystal sea. Not a sea that's violent and turbulent and cursed, but one that's completely completely calm and at peace, reconciled now to God because of Jesus and the cross. But of course, for us now, creation can be frightening and can be terrifying in its brutality because it still bears the hallmarks of sin's curse. No wonder, therefore, that in verse 24, Matthew uses powerful words to describe the storm. Literally, Matthew describes it as a mega seismos in the sea. You know what a seismograph measures, don't you? Right? Earthquakes. This was no normal storm. What is described is a huge earthquake under the sea that rips this place up. Here is creation at its most frightening. And Jesus takes his disciples right into the heart, the turbulent epicenter of a created order at its most destructive moment. And there, there and then, the Son of Man, who's got no place to rest his head because the, restoring the created order from its curse is relentless, this job. There and then he stands up and does what Adam failed to do. He restores order to the chaos and he undoes the curse of sin. Isn't that brilliant? Who is this man, the disciples ask, that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man who puts all things right? Who is this man who addresses our deepest fears? Who is this man? That question is answered in the next demonstration. The answer, however, comes from a most surprising source, the demonic hordes possessing these two men. They acknowledge Jesus as the very son of God. That's who he is. 
with all the authority that he commands. What kind of a man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Not only he who restores a cursed creation, but he is, he is the one who will destroy the demonic realm. And the demons know it. Listen carefully to Matthew's account of the demons' words. What do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Before the appointed time. Their words are instructive, aren't they? There is a time appointed for demons to be tortured. And they know it, and they know that Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who will be their torturer. So his authority is not just to restore creation, his authority is to destroy the demonic realm. And this helps explain, I think, why Jesus gives such a harsh answer to the second disciple. Let the dead bury their own dead. Let's think about this. Now, think biblically. When else does this happen? Twice in the scriptures, God's people are told not to bury their dead. Jeremiah 16 and Ezekiel 24. In both cases, the reason why they're not to bury their own dead is because judgment, a terrible judgment, is about to fall. When Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, I don't think he's just being rude, dishonouring to parents, right? He's saying, you are standing on the precipice of a massive judgment that is about to fall. And now he's spoken of the dead, and so he takes his disciples to the realm of the dead, and he enacts judgment on the demonic hordes. The demons beg Jesus to be sent into the large herds of pigs feeding some distance away. Go, says Jesus. And with that, the demons, of course, come out of the men. They go into the pigs. The whole herd of pigs rushes down the steep bank into the lake and drown in the water. Isn't this astounding? Can you see the authority that Jesus has? The immense, wonderful authority to destroy the demonic realm. This is so massive when you think of it. Now, of course... That moment of destruction is only a snapshot of what Jesus will do at the appointed time. And we might ask, well, when is that appointed time? When's that appointed moment of judgment? Well, it's no coincidence in Matthew's gospel that Jesus himself talks of his own appointed time. We read, when the time for his death drew near, Jesus told his disciples to make preparations for the Passover and to say to the owner of the house with the upper room, my teacher says, my appointed time is near. And he's speaking about the cross. Um, what did the cross achieve? It's not just salvation for you. It's judgment on Satan. John chapter 12, now is the time for the prince of this world to be driven out, says Jesus, when he knows that the time has come for him to be lifted up. Colossians chapter 2, it's through the cross that God disarms the powers and the principalities and the authorities. It's the cross that the moment of judgment against Satan and his hordes is sealed now, of course, the day of judgment plays out what happened at the cross, what Jesus won there. 
the implications will be played out. But the battle happened here at the cross. That was the moment when Satan was really judged. He was stripped of his power. He lost. Well, before we take that boat back from the land where the wild things are, we need to learn two lessons for we as disciples. Number one, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, meaning as for Jesus, so for his disciples. Jesus' mission task is relentless. It is ongoing. It is never-ending. Well, not until he comes back. The world still suffers the violent convulsions of sin's curse. There is still need to bring order and hope to the world through sharing Jesus. Um, and that need is as pressing as then, and the mission of Jesus continues. Australia, when you think about it, we suffered, didn't we, last January, the convulsions of a, of a, of a cursed creation in these hellish fires. What is the great need of Australians given those fires? The great need is for every Australian to secure a place in the restored creation. Isn't that the great need, given that we live in a creation that's cursed? How is that going to happen? But through them placing their trust in the one who came to restore creation and undo sin's curse and will make all things new. So the need, the environmental need or consequence for all Australians is to place their trust in Jesus, who is the head of the new creation. Now, the need to get on with the job of sharing Christ, of course, is relentless. There's no place to lay our heads. There's no place where the gospel doesn't need to be spoken. There's no time when you can say, oh, we've done it. Everyone's been reached. The whole world now trusts in Jesus. We just can't afford that luxury. So in your decision to follow Jesus, let me ask you this question. Have you counted that cost? Do you understand that resting, biblically speaking, is for heaven, not for retirement? Now, if that is deeply wearying as a thought, please hear the word of God to encourage you. Think of what happens on the lake. The Son of Man is with you. You will be safe with him. You will not be overcome. He will keep you. He will save you. Do not fear. Secondly, let the dead bury their own dead. Meaning that to be involved in Christ's mission impacts the demonic realm. When we proclaim Jesus' lordship as has been done today... We proclaim Satan's defeat. This has consequences for the demonic realm. When you share the news of Christ, the gospel, and someone responds, they are rescued from Satan's grip. They are brought out of the dominion of darkness. They are brought into the kingdom of God's son, whom he loves. It is another death knell for the demonic realm. It is another reminder to Satan that he will finally be tortured and destroyed on the day of Christ. And so to mission into this context is to proclaim what the disciples saw, and that is Jesus' victory. A few years ago, I was at a CMS missionary convention, and I spoke to a re retired, <laughs> having just spoken against retirement, a CMS missionary who used to be in Tanzania. 
he taught for decades there in a Bible college, and he taught um, pastors and evangelists, he trained them. And I stuck up my hand and said, did you ever teach people to do exorcisms because the spirit world is sort of big in Tanzania? He said, no, no, what he did do was to teach his students as Jesus' disciples to proclaim Jesus' victory over the demonic realm. Because um, it's interesting when you read the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples to cast out demons, but it doesn't tend to happen so much later on after Jesus has died. It does a bit in the book of Acts, but that big focus sort of shifts to proclaiming the Gospel. Um, Not long after that, I received a phone call from a young mum. Now, this was a woman who had become a Christian through the ministry of a hospital chaplain near where we were living. And Narelle and I were contacted to be the people in the local church who followed them up and made friends. So we had she and her partner around to dinner with their new baby. And we, you know, we looked after them and tried to integrate them into church and gave them baby stuff and stuff like that. Um, Six weeks after the birth of their child, he hung himself in their wardrobe in their bedroom. It was completely shocking, a massive tragedy. She rings me up and says, I'm really afraid about his ghost. Can you come and do something? Now, Moore College doesn't treat you, doesn't have a class called Exorcisms 101, right? But I did know the gospel and I knew Jesus' victory and so I knew where my confidence needed to be. So I took my, here's what I did. I don't know if this was right. If you've got more experience, tell me. (laughs) But I, I stood in the room I looked at the wardrobe, I saw the place, and I read out passages like this, proclaiming Jesus' victory over the demonic realm, and I prayed that this woman would know this victory too, and the peace that comes from knowing that God is with her through Christ. And I prayed that, that the whole house, actually, would never know anything but the peace that comes through the gospel. Now, as I was doing all that, was it just the woman who was hearing it? Or was, were there other beings hearing this as well? I don't know. But I knew whatever audience was there, Jesus' authority to destroy evil, exercised at the cross, needed to be spoken. Two lessons from the wild side for would-be disciples. Number one, mission is relentless. But don't be afraid. Secondly, mission impacts the demonic realm. Proclaim his victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus, the mighty one, the human one, who has all authority over all that's terrifying and frightening, a world undone by sin's curse and the, and, you know, the demons. Father, thank you that Jesus is able to deal with all of it. And thank you that he disarmed it, disarmed demons at the cross and Satan. Thank you that at the cross, you were able to achieve a reconciliation of cursed creation back to you. So that when Jesus comes, Satan will be crushed and there will be a new creation. Thank you for his power. Help us to know no fear, but to get on with the work of proclaiming Christ to a world that's lost. In Jesus' name, amen.